Hello and welcome to this episode of Superhero Ethics. Today we are talking about the hot new movie on Netflix, Old Guard. I am joined by good friend and hardcore fan, Fox K, for a discussion of all the ethics around immortality and what does it mean to remake Highlander with characters who aren't all white men. All that more after this commercial break we have no control over. Welcome back. I'm Matthew. I'm your host. And I'm joined today by a friend who I'm really excited. Um, Fox and I have been friends for a while and been talking about um, finding a way to get her on the podcast. Uh, At some point soon, we're also going to do an episode about cosplay and all the ways that cosplay and fandom of the things we talk about um, interact. But then this movie came out and I knew I wanted to talk about it. And uh, Fox, I saw you posted a couple things about it that made me think I really wanted to get you on it. So I'm really excited to have you on. Um, how you doing and how you feeling about this? I'm feeling really excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me. I absolutely love this movie and I had such a spectacular time watching it and kind of, you know, rolling it around in my brain after after I saw it. And I'm super excited to get a chance to really delve deeper into what it means. Awesome. Awesome. Well, yeah, I'm really excited to ha- have you on for it. Um for folks who have not seen it yet, I will say we're, we're gonna spoil like crazy everything that happens in this movie. Um, so, uh, definitely if you, if you, you haven't seen it yet, you may want to hit pause and, uh, watch it on Netflix. It's very good. Uh, all sorts of things to enjoy from a bunch of different perspectives. Um, if you haven't seen it and are decided you're not going to see it or you don't care about being spoiled, definitely follow along. Um, the movie brings up some larger issues and we'll talk about those issues. Uh, but we'll definitely be grounding it in this movie itself. So, um, let me just start by Fox. What, what makes you love this movie? What, what, what made you, um, be, be so excited about it? Well, to start off, I don't know who told Charlize Theron that as her as her career progressed, she should just become an action star. But I'm for one loving it. I think <laughs> she kills everything yes. about this movie. Um, her her character is absolutely just glowing the entire time, as well as uh, Niall as the other you know female lead, and the two the two of them. Every single scene they have together is exquisite. And it's a beautiful mm-hmm. movie. I think it's very well shot. It's very well paced. Um, the the light moments of comedy as contrasted with a pretty dark set of subject material. I think it yeah. handles everything very well and it brings up some really great questions. And I think it's fantastic. It's a comic book movie, which I didn't even realize while watching it. I ended up uh, going online you know, afterwards and learning that it's based in, in a comic series. And I think it does a really good job of something that sometimes comic book movies fail at, which is it effectively presented everything as its own contained universe. It, um, yeah. it made all the information readily available. The enti- I, I was able to jump right in and get engaged with these characters and their lives. And I thought every aspect was fantastic. Yeah, I have a very similar reaction. I, I love the point you bring up about the comic books because I think that's key. Um, it, it for me, it's for two things. One is that I love knowing that it's based on a comic book, but this never felt like a comic book movie. Um, and I, I think the idea of a comic book movie is kind of like, like we've advanced pretty far away from that in general. But there are definitely ways in which I can feel like I, I'm not I don't really fully understand it unless I've read the source material. Um, and I never felt like that with this as well as. And I'm one of the most hardcore Marvel fanboys out there you'll find. And I also love a lot of DC stuff. But I really like that we're finding more and more content that is based in comic books that is, I mean, this may have gone out under a Marvel or DC print, not that I know of, 
but it's certainly not part of either of those extended universes. Um, and I'm, you know, with this and with things like Umbrella Academy and, and um, The Boys and other stuff like that, I, I'm just really happy we're getting to see more stuff that is not part of a big universe. It's just a standalone story that, that really is, is very satisfying without having to be part of any kind of larger thing. And, and as, a, as far as I know, probably from a, a more independent uh, uh, line. Definitely. I think it uh, I think it's absolutely fantastic that we're finding, you know, different styles of comic books and that we have so much source material to pull, in, to pull from. Uh, comic books are, of course, an art form and a widely varied one for themselves. Uh, yeah, so fine. I think it's great that we're getting, you know, people diving deeper into that as a source material for media. Yeah. But I also I also like that you know it, it's been it's very interesting and i'll be interested to see how this movie ages but mm-hmm. of course we do have the advantage of this being a modern movie so some things that happen in it are just sort of normal and accepted for us so things like we right. have the scene pretty early on where uh andy is you know trying to stay out of a photograph she hears a group of tourists taking you know taking a selfie together and she offers to take a photo for them and deletes the one with her in the background off of their phone. All of us, you know, right. now understand exactly how that process works. But um, I will, I'll be interested to see, you know, as, as technology advances, how that, uh, how some of those nuances get lost. But I think for now, because it is a modern movie, we definitely, the ease of learning all of the new information about this universe that they've presented to us is definitely well lubricated by the fact that there's uh, a lot of the social nuance is, you know, simply our daily lives. Yeah, it's very true. I'm, I'm currently watching a different TV show with my partner that's set in like the mid 2000s. It starts in like 2007 or so. And the characters keep pulling out these little electronic boxes <laughs> that they use almost exclusively for phone calls and occasionally to send very blocky, you know, tap on the the abc key twice to get the letter b text messages um and we have to keep reminding ourselves like no they don't have little computers in their pockets they have phones that can occasionally send texts um it's just such an interesting like just in 12 years that technology has changed so much um but you're right i i do like how grounded and kind of the the now moment it is i I also i'm curious if you felt this way um part of what i liked so much about this movie was it did feel in some ways like it was very much a I think how to best say this. There was a lot of interesting things in it and a lot of new takes on things, but the plot is fairly formulaic for the, you know, action movie kind of thing of a new person d- develops powers and is taken in by the old veteran and we learn about the things through the eyes of the new person. And there's conflict and, and like the grizzled old veteran and the, 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 the new person has to come join the team. Like a lot of those tropes are ones that I've seen a thousand times before, but almost always with two straight white men. I was going to say I'm 100% here for Jason Bourne, but make it queer. So Yeah, right. And like I, I think there's somebody who said like I love things that break tropes, but I also think there's a great story about saying let's take the classic trope we have, but queer it and feminize it and and make it not just white characters and that's one of the things i love about this movie and i think a lot of people have talked about it being really important that we have you know the the main story is two women um the two two most prominent male characters have a beautifully told queer relationship including i think 
one of the most romantic speeches I've ever heard, um, where, where someone says in, in what's meant to be kind of a mocking tone to one of the two male characters uh, who are in a relationship, oh, is he your boyfriend? Um, and I don't know if this was true for you. I hadn't picked up on this point uh, on the idea that they were in a relationship yet. And he starts by saying, no, he's not my boyfriend in a way that I think is just going to be a straight guy saying, no, we're just friends. But then turns into this incredibly romantic, you know, I have loved him over 500 years. We've killed each other a thousand times and learned to love each other. He is the sun. He is the moon. How can you just call him my boyfriend? Uh, which I thought was just one of the greatest reveals I've seen in a movie like this in a long time. I thought it was spectacular. I think every relationship reveal in this movie was so well done. Um, even you have from the very first moment where you have Andy rejoining her team, Booker's entrance is very telling of that character from the, mm -hmm. from, from the go, you know, exactly who they are to each other. And then you see the four, you know, original team characters interacting and, you know, you can tell there's such a familiarity and such a companionship and they're, they're happy to see each other. And it's been a little while and you can tell all of these things. It's, there's such a show and don't tell about yeah. the, about these relationships and, the way that Niall and uh, and Andy start to interact at the very beginning from and through the way that they interact all the way through the movie, how that relationship grows. And yeah, the, re the reveal from Sebastian and Nikki and even then the fact that that, uh, that that gorgeous speech ends with you always were a hopeless romantic. Yeah. <laughs> and I love it because it, it also gets to a point that I think is very interesting in, in, in stories like this about how when you share something with someone else that almost literally no one else in the world has, in this case, the idea that you're immortal, that can overcome almost any boundary. Because with the way they set it up for um, Sebastian and Nikki is that they were on all, uh, I, I think they were on different sides of the Crusades, right? One of them was, yes. was Muslim and the other was a, a French crusader. Uh, or no, I think he was French. I think... Um, uh, Booker's French, but that they, I think they say like that they killed each other a hundred times in battle. Um, and eventually like came to realize like that they, they share this connection that superseded their, their differences and, and eventually fell deeply in love. Yeah. I think, I think it's very interesting. And I think that the fact that they have some, some degree of connection, they, that we see once Niall is introduced that Niall becomes immortal. And then the other four, suddenly have dreams of information on how to find them but then you see Niall having dreams about Quinn where yes. she has some they all have some sort of mental connection that we don't necessarily get explained in this yeah. movie but they are but they are presented with some degree of information through each other's dreams mm -hmm. um so that is another very interesting connection that I don't know if they'll explore that more in the heavily implied sequel yeah. <laughs> please don't leave me on that cliffhanger I will pass away yeah I, I remember coming out of it and thinking and maybe this is in part just because I've gotten so used to watching you know I, I think we're now kind of in the golden age of television again where or the silver age or plat, whatever the hell it is um, but I remember coming to the end of it being like okay that was an awesome pilot I'm really excited now for the next eight episodes <laughs> wait it was done that's a movie no that can't be um, how dare you say that's the end yeah, and I, I do think that Netflix has already announced that they're working on the second one. Um, oh, so I do it. think we are definitely getting a, the full trilogy. Let me just do a, a quick plot summary for those who either have seen it. Um, I mean, it's only been out for about two weeks by now, but either those who have forgotten a little bit or 
if you're the bold person who doesn't mind being spoiled and wants to just kind of follow along. So um, painting in very broad strokes, and, and Fox, tell me if I miss anything. Uh, I'll miss lots of things, but if I miss anything significant. <laughs> um, we meet uh, our, our heroes who are some kind of like A-team. You know, they're uh, mercenaries who are kind of do-gooders. They get hired by this guy Copley to go rescue a group of African girls who've been kidnapped. Um, turns out that they were, um, there's no, it's all just a setup. There's no girls. They all get mowed down and, uh, killed by a, a trap they fell into. But surprise, they're not actually dead. They were hurt, but they're, they can't die. They come back to life. They slaughter all the people who were sent against them. And we learn that they're all immortal. And now they're trying to track down Copley who betrayed them. Um, they find out along the way that also there's this person named Niall, who is a, uh, a young black woman and a soldier. She supposedly died in Afghanistan, but has come back to life. So they recognize her as one of their own. And they go and pick her up. Andy, who's the leader of them, uh, who is the oldest of them, goes all the way back to ancient Greece. Um, do you remember her? It, it's in... Andromache. Not, it's not Andromache. What is it? It's Andromache. Andromache. Yeah, it's not Andromeda. It's Andromache of <laughs> Scythia. Um otherwise known as Andy. Um, they have some great conflict. They have the whole, like, you know, are, are we really immortal? Well, I'm going to shoot you in the head and you're going to be fine. You know, just, you know, a meet cute as normally happens. Um, uh, although more mentor, not romantic. Um, they track Copley. They find out that Copley is working for this doctor who has a um, secret plan to study the immortals, to try to figure out what makes them immortal so that he can cure all disease. Um, Copley, his wife died of a terrible regenerative disease, so at least he has some kind of altruistic motive of wanting to cure disease for everyone else. The doctor seems mostly just to want to get filthy rich. Um, Booker betrays them. um, Nikki and Sebastian get captured, and then we have a big fight scene to rescue them, during the course of which it gets recognized that um, Andy is not actually fully immortal. Well, let me back up. That... um, any immortal can eventually stop being immortal for reasons not being known. And that Andy has now passed that threshold. Andy is now vulnerable to death. Um, and so they, they, um, Niall isn't sure if she wants to be on the team, but comes back to save the day, help save the team. And at the end of the day, the, um, team has defeated the doctor, killed all of his henchmen, uh, rescued the people who needed to be rescued and discovered that Booker is the, the turncoat, and they have basically banished Booker from them for a hundred years and told Copley that his penance will be, he, he turns coats and helps them. And now he has to basically be their eyes and ears as they become a superhero action team again. Um, and along the way, they also is revealed that there was another member of their team named Quinn who was part of the team for a while. I think it's strongly implied that she and Andy were lovers, but I don't think it's ever explicitly said. Um, and that she was captured during the Middle Ages as, like, a witch. They tried to burn the two of them multiple times. Of course, it didn't work. And so Quinn has been basically locked into a box that was buried at the bottom of the ocean so that she has spent the last 500 years literally drowning to death every five minutes or so and then coming back to life. Um, And then in the very last scene of the movie, it's shown that she has been freed and she's back with Booker. Um, That was completely incoherent and probably made no sense to anyone, but Fox, did I miss out? on any major details. (laughs) No, I think that was all the major highlights. Right. 
there's, you know, a lot of great plot points in the middle, but that kind of gives you at least the, the idea of what happens. So let, let's talk about some of the questions that this movie raises, because I think the, the most interesting ones are around immortality. And I, I kind of made a joke that it's sort of a, a new version of Highlander. And it kind of is, but it's obviously very different. Um, they're not all trying to kill each other. There's no, there can be only one. Um, <laughs> but I think one of the things that it brings up is this question of like, how does being immortal change your, change your morality? Um, and, and just how does having this different perspective change the way you see things? Um, what was your take on the, the kind of characters and how they seem to be sort of divorced from a lot of those human concerns? Well, I think it was very interesting because you did see evidence that our team our team is very mercenary but they also you know seem to do some degree of good uh their right. you know their lore mission is hey could you go rescue these girls who are being trafficked they um it's show when uh when it pans to Copley's office you have years and years and years of him tracking um the sort of waterfall effect the butterfly effect of right. all of these good deeds that they've saved you know insert person here and then sent a century you know down the line or a generation down the line one of those descendants is you know someone highly beneficial to the human race and copley has been able to track this because he's on the outside of it he's you know not doing this but he's able to see how all of their actions have benefited people and that's a very interesting scene to watch the team after you know after all is said and done watch the team see the good that they've done uh and not just the immediate good to help one person but help hundreds of thousands of people down the line um so it was it was very interesting to see that they were they were almost they were an unaware sort of good that they were they were definitely you know Take it. I think I think that there was an interesting moral guide that they they still had some degree of morality and even it's it's interesting because Booker of course turns in the team potentially subjecting them to you know infinite painful medical experiments but he also says that the reason he did it um, Copley's wife I believe it said dies of MS um, yeah which to anyone who's ever experienced that is a horrible thing um, to watch happen to someone you love and then. Booker's son died of cancer, right. I believe. Um, so you have these situations. Booker, especially, he says that he told his son that he's immortal, and his son basically said, "You can't give. You won't. You won't give it to me. Therefore, you don't love me." Right. Um, and and this was I, happening in like the seventeen <laughs> hundreds. So it's with without any kind of like the the idea that they're they're. They think it's like witchcraft or magic or something. There's no like understanding of medical ideas, but but that the same idea can occur at any point in time. Yeah, and there's there's no, and of course you know, they they don't pick anybody to be immortal. They don't have any way to pass that on, certainly. But also then to yeah, hear from hear from your dying son like, oh, you don't love me. That right. um, never never had that happen. But I'm imagining it sucked. A lot. <laughs> I, I have to the, guess so yeah theoretically i'm gonna guess um but it's one of those things where you get this with the advancement of course uh, of uh actual medical you know viably medical viable medical research now um that you have dr Merritt going into the 
the fact that their cells, you know, might not cap their telomeres and things like that, which is, you know, of course, it's <laughs> this is a, not a scientific movie, but that is really how we die is right. our telomere our telomeres are capped. That's real. Um, so that was very interesting to hear. But, um, his, you know, his theories about how this might save humanity, because what in it, in the movie, what their the source of their immortality is just that they can heal from catastrophic injuries right. and that they don't apparently age um until they do but um that they and that's what that's what happens of course in the in the scene with um the scene where they're captured or where they're uh the scene where they're tricked by Copley is that you see them shot and then you see them healing from the gunshot wounds and then the same thing when um Andy is proving denial that she's now immortal is she <laughs> and she shoots her in the leg with is it um yeah, she's I think she just shoots her right in the heart I mean she definitely kills her but then now yeah. comes back to life again but um but the point is that she says oh you're it's your healing it's that they can heal from catastrophic injuries that people you know who are mortal that people who are mortal would just bleed out by the time they even bothered. Um, right. So one it, thing. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was yeah, one thing I thought was interesting was, um, and this was pointed out on a a friend Becky Allen's podcast, um, Becky and Rachel Judge things. Um, they talked about they thought it was interesting, and I, I think this was I think this was intentional and not just bad writing, but it 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 makes an interesting point about the characters. They have almost no strategy when they go into battle situations because it seems like they are so used to the idea of, all right, worst comes to worst. They shoot us. We die. We come back to life. It's not pleasant, but we do it. They've kind of given up the ability of like, let's try to not get shot quite as much. Like they just sort of have this like very nihilistic like, all right, let's go in. It's going to suck, but we'll do it, which I think is. They have a very guerrilla. It's a combination of just of guerrilla warfare and i think i think we see them avoiding like ideally avoiding catastrophic explosions but also you know when you when you hear the really loud bang then we ambush them so it's it's more yeah it's more things like you know preventing being ganged up on um yeah and general tactics but yeah definitely there's there's not there's not much a concern for oh no that guy has a gun oh darn oh geez um you yeah. see you see andy's technique i mean Andy brings an axe to a gunfight every single yeah. time she can. <laughs> <laughs> and God bless her for that, because that's some great choreography right there. And, you know, frankly, if you'd been fighting with an axe for 2,800 years, and then these, like, kids have started doing this weird thing with, you know, pipes and pieces of lead, like, yeah, maybe you don't <laughs> learn the, the hip new technology, because you're really good with the axe, so why not? Yeah, she. Um, I mean, she. she definitely fires a gun multiple times, but she also has a preference and yeah. it's fantastic and i appreciate that nod to her um if you if you look into her name at all it's heavily implied that she's spartan yeah um based on based on the location of her name based on the origin location it's heavily implied that she's a spartan warrior so she knows what she's doing yeah and and the sport thing, i, I want to back up to the idea of like the people they saved but let's first just talk about the way they do violence because the spartan thing might actually answer what is i think another big big question for me about them they're very brutal in their violence you know like w- there are characters like batman or daredevil or others who you know try not to use lethal force 
And then there are others that Someone think kind of Matt separate. Murdock, actually, no one told Matt Murdock about a blunt force trauma because that would just yeah, be no, kindness. I, I have commented many times on this podcast that the idea of I don't kill people, I just hit them in the head with an iron pipe <laughs> at great strength is... You know, we're we're just gonna go with it for the moment. Someday, someday, if I had if I had one multiverse hopping wish, I would sit down with James Buchanan Barnes and explain to him that throwing people down a stairwell is not kind to their memories. Yes, or that perhaps to cap that banging their head with a yeah. Anyway, the, putting aside the lethality of of different forms of violence, um, but but you know the other thing I think I sometimes see from heroes is an idea of okay, I'm going to go after the bad guy, but these, you know, poor schnooks who are getting paid, you know, 20 bucks an hour to carry a gun and stand outside the bad guy's headquarters, you know, they're not quite as bad. Um, Our heroes have none of that. Like, the cops go after them, and the cops get slaughtered. And we can talk about how bad cops are, and that's a whole other story. But, you know, and in the final battle, they're going up against private security guards, maybe the leaders of whom know that... um, the terrible things are being done, but most of them seem like they're just, you know, getting paid. They're all going to die. Um, and I think it's interesting. Sometimes shows just seem to like, we want to show cool violence and we don't care about this. Clearly this show cared about it because it's a major plot point of Niall walks away when she kind of thinks like, you know, she sees the brutality that Andy uses to win fights and feels like I, I can't be a part of this. It just looks too, it's too over the top. Um, which coming from a member of the United States Marines is an interesting standpoint to be sure. Um, or maybe the army, but either way. But yeah, what, what was your take on, on kind of that part of it? Because I, I really liked that. Um, it, it sort of felt to me like these people have been alive for thousands of years, hundreds of years. The, they fight for what they think is good, but the importance of like preserving the individual life is not quite as important to them. And I don't think that's portrayed as heroic. That should portray it as like who they are. I think I think it's very interesting. I think that um, I think that we do sort of fall into. I mean, even watching the scene where Andy's making her uh, personal exit, as we will, um, watching it, it's it's any it's any fight scene. Like, oh, that's a cool angle. That's a cool shot, and you're just, you're watching and enjoying it the whole way. Um, even when you know Booker Booker's like, oh, that's the signal. There we go, and the whole thing. The whole progression. Um, and we get wrapped up in that. And to see someone be affected by it, I think Niall in general is a very interesting contrast to all of them. Um, the fact that she, the, her ties to her family and her determination to give her family some sort of closure, I think is, I think right. we see kind of, we see very lately, but we see it affect them to some degree. And the fact that she speaks about them helping her to solve that speaks to how they feel about that. But that is in the past for all of them. Their families are long right. dead. Um, yeah. And it, I think that she still cares about the things they've all forgotten about. Exactly. And I think that's a very interesting, I think it's very interesting that not only, you know, not only do we have Niall commenting about how this violence is so over the top, this violence is so, you know, unnecessary. And then right after that, we have the team betrayal is yeah. the next immediate plot point. So it's a very... Oh, yeah, I didn't even put that together, but that's so interesting. Yeah, so that, like, that's the next, so to speak, important thing that happens is that the team is betrayed. Right. Um, and I think that's very interesting that 
systematically several people walk away in uh you know that they step away from the from the core team um right right as everything seems to come together which is it's partially just the, the formula partially the progression of the movie but it is very interesting the reasons that people are stepping back from that and yeah in some theory trying to do you know trying to do good with what they have if they will it served in it it i observed and was and i'm interested in booker gave up the team but he didn't exactly volunteer himself for anything yeah and that was and it, very interesting to me and to me it, it it on some level it speaks to this same kind of like just being deadened to the consequences in these terms, because I think, mm-hmm. and part of what he says is he feels like he doesn't think it's going to be too bad in part, because I think a, he doesn't realize just how sadistic the doctor is going to be and how awful the treatment, the the, the experiments are going to be, but also because I think in, he's sort of in that same part of like, okay, what happens? The doctor kills them a couple of times. Eh, no big deal. Like, yeah. and, and you're see, right. He doesn't volunteer. Still feel, we see them still feel pain. We see like, even, you know, Booker gets his entire stomach blown open, but he also reacts to it the same way that we do a hangover, where he's like, ah, gosh, yeah. darn it, this will get better in a couple minutes, I guess. So it is that they're yeah. very desensitized not only to the pain of others, but the, to the pain of themselves. How can there, and it raises the conversation, how can you relate to something you can't experience? Yeah. To a degree and- that, you know, after, after, a, like people, it is, it is of human nature to a, attempt to relate to other people. But certainly, mm. we see in our day and age, plenty of people are closed off to the uh, to the sufferings of others, and that's it's very interesting to see that they just they almost don't consider it. That in to a degree, they see these dead bodies as roadblocks. Just oh, yeah. once well, once they're mowed down, I can walk forward. So down they go. I, I mean, <clears throat> it's an interesting metaphor. They basically have immortality privilege, you know. They, they kind of have sort of forgotten, like, what it's like to not think that, you know, that, yeah, like you said, that, you know, getting your stomach blown out is worse than a hangover or that, you know, you could still care about a family member who, for all of them, has been dead for centuries, if not millennia. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I think I, and I like I really like the way you put it up there about that they just they can't relate to that anymore. And Nile Nile is a very nice foil for that because she still can. Um. I want to go back to what you were saying before about because I, I didn't think the movie answered this, and I'm wondering if you if you had a thought on it one way or the other, or maybe I missed something. Um, Copley, as you said, is he kind of sees the team doing good because they keep saving people, and that like you know it, if I save someone, like I push them out of the way of a, a rushing car, in five generations their child does something great, I'll never know. But these guys can, these folks can, because they get to see it. You know, they live through all those generations. Do you think Copley is saying that there's something a little bit mystical at work here and that like they, whatever reason they're immortal is also the reason why they keep saving important people? Or is it just the random coincidence of if you save a thousand people, 10 of them are going to be significant? I almost think it's neither of those. Um, mm. I don't think it doesn't feel to me like Copley saying, you know, this is proof of insert deity here. Um, and it doesn't necessarily feel random either. Um, it feels more to me. It feels like an implication of their inherent good. 
Um, and it, it feels a little bit, it feels a little bit like it felt to me at least like it was meant to imply that they were making, you know, the morally right decisions. So Mm. it's almost that, you know, if, if you have some sort of complex war, which they are consistently involved to some degree in, um, there will be good people and there will be bad people and there will just be people. Right. But it seems to imply that they are able to skirt saving the really bad people. Um, yeah. I don't necessarily I... know, you know, it, it, it never seemed, it never seemed to invoke, you know, destiny to me. It more, it more seemed to me as like a reminder, you know, to them, like you, that, you know, your work is worth something almost. Yeah, I, I like that idea. It, it makes me curious because you sort of wonder why is it that they haven't saved somebody whose great great grandson goes on to form the KKK, you know, or or do they, yeah. you know, and that it's just the 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 draws are random both ways. I, I like your idea that there's there's a little bit of an innate like that they they kind of are able to somehow know, um, but which is an interesting question. Um, it it also though gets to one of the other big ethical questions that I I think kind of this whole this movie brings up and it's one that gets talked about a lot but i think it's interesting looking at in a, from a new perspective here um because there are times when they, the characters kind of talk about like can we just be done do we have to keep going on missions can we just leave and do whatever the hell else we're going to do with our lives that will never end um and I, I feel like kind of what you were saying about how like you know if you have these powers it, it's kind of raising the whole ben peter parker question you know with great power comes great responsibility um do, do you feel like there is like when characters have this ability that they do that they are immortal that there's that they can face death and and save people because death is not the problem for others that it is do, does that give them it, would they be able to just to say okay cool i'm just going to make wine for the next 1000 years or is there some responsibility to to do good with this power not that making wine isn't doing good for those listeners who are arguing about that already but you know what i mean go ahead I think that um, there's a there's a combination of things. I think that I, I, it is implied that they take some time off in certain mm-hmm. degrees, whether that's, you know, a necessary force or a, or a decision they make themselves. It is implied that they take time off, um, that they haven't seen each other for a little while, that they don't know where they where the others have been. Um Simply implied by the fact that uh, they that Andy doesn't automatically know where they got the baklava from, and baklava doesn't stay fresh for that long. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's very true. Uh, but I think that part of it has to, at least to me, I think part of it is implied that if they are to some degree good people, that if you don't have, you know, if you are more capable or you don't have, you know, a certain degree of consequence, that there is an internal push to take those actions. Yeah. Um, and I think we see, especially in a day like this, we see people doing that every day. For all the mm-hmm. evil that there is in the world, we see people who, whether there are consequences or not taking action, and, the, and this team, of course, is able to take extreme action because of the story um i don't 
I don't know that I can say it's an automatic duty because I can't automatically say that that humans are good uh, as a full sweep. That that's a pretty pretty fair statement, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that I don't think it's a duty for people to help others. I think it is a push that is found in good people. Yeah. I, I think that's a good way to say it because I, I've definitely really wrestled with that. You know, when we, we did a whole episode on this not long ago and, and kind of came down on like that the, the statement of with great power comes great responsibility is very problematic, especially when it's, you know, who decides what that responsibility is and who decides when you get to stop. And, and, you know, especially when you didn't choose that power. Um, but it, I like that better way of saying it. That's not about this external responsibility. It's more about, you know, part of what makes someone a, a an admirable person, a hero, is that something inside of them says, like, these terrible things are happening and I could stop them, but I'm not. And that's not okay. And I think I think that's, it's interesting because with great power comes great responsibility as uh, somebody whose first, you know, first hero was raised by Ben Parker. That's something that's oh. kind of just... <laughs> 100 percent that's my that's my og right there Um, okay but it is so interesting and i think that it's i think that i've always taken that statement a different way ironically i think that i've Mm. always taken that and certainly this is not a spider-man podcast at the moment so i will not derail for too long but i always talk to that as you know, not o- not only do you have a push to do what you can with what you have, but also that you have to handle what you can do. Mm. So I always took that kind of as a twofold statement. Yeah. I definitely like that part of it. And, and yeah, um, we did a whole podcast on it. And so I'll definitely point our fans in that direction. Um, but because you weren't talking about it, I think it, it's interesting, I think, to go a little deeper because it's a major po- focus of this show as well. Um because to me, the answer to it is always um, Luke Cage. Um, uh, and I, I bring him up specifically because there's a mo- – do you see the Luke Cage show on Netflix? And it was it was fascinating for sure. Yeah. Because I, I – and again, I haven't seen it in a couple of years. I don't remember the exact details. But I do remember that there's a moment where someone says to him, like, listen, you have this ability. You should be a hero like, you know, Iron Man or, or Captain America. And, and he basically says, like, listen, as a black man – for me to say I'm going to be super powered and go do my own thing because I can, like, I don't have the ability to do that the way a Steve Rogers does. Um, and and I think that always really struck me as, you know, how does that responsibility play out for, and especially that in Luke Cage's case, as someone who had these powers forced upon him in a way that he really had actively fought against. Um, and he does at the end take up that mental responsibility, but he takes it up on his terms. Um so I, I think I'm I, I'm pretty much in agreement with you, uh, especially with that 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 sort of second part that you add. Um, I think it's just, it's in, to me. I guess the main question is, who decides? It, is the responsibility one that you place on yourselves, or is it one that someone else can place on you? You know, and say like, oh, I see you have this power, so I'm going to tell you. You know, you should be doing this. You should be doing that. Well, I think at the end of the day, do we want reluctant heroes? Because that's the question we ask, is anybody anybody who has something pushed upon them, um, whether, you know, if that, if that awakens something in them, great. 
But if it doesn't, it's a it's you have to consent to being a hero. I think yeah. at the end of the day, I think you have to to do something like that and to truly do it. I think the thing that would make you a hero isn't just the fact that you're going through the emotions. I think that it is a choice. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting that you bring up Luke Cage and what I hear in his story is a lot of parallels to Nile. Um, yes, and that exactly was an interesting thing that I uh, the the, fir- the first time I watched it that they showed her sit up in that bed and I said, "Oh my God, the black girl's immortal." There was yep. not a question as to whether or not she was going to die for the rest of the movie. She is immortal. The end. And you don't yeah. have to sit and watch the black girl die on screen. There's and no barrier queers. There's no barrier people of color. Nope. And it was. Yeah, I mean, and um, Andy Booker and Nikki are all white. Um, Sebastian is, Sebastian's brown. Niall is black. Quinn is, Quinn is um, Asian. Asian. And none of them are going to die. Yeah, it's very true. And that is just, that is just presented as that is the, that is the verse. That is the story. None of them are going to die. And that was a very interesting movie to watch and that Mm -hmm. was that was to just completely remove that as an option um because you to some degree you sit through a movie and and that is a potential for all characters but the way movies are written these days that's a very distinct potential and in 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 real life that is a very distinct potential more so for those people those characters right and to completely just remove that as an option via you know the the plot. Yeah, and I think that's the Luke Cage point, is that for him as a man of color, for him to kind of act as a vigilante puts himself at more risk than a Steve Rogers or a, or a, um, a Tony Stark. And you're right, I think removing that entirely, because I think Niall very much is the reluctant hero you're talking about. And that the a key part of the story is her getting to make that decision, to, to, to claim that mantle of responsibility, but on her own terms. And the fact that for her she doesn't have to think about, am I more at risk of death? It's really nice to, to have that just totally off the table. Yeah, I and I think that we, when she makes that decision and when, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know, you know, I can't speak for everybody, but I watched that entire movie knowing she, you know, feeling like she is a good person, that she had her head on screen. She's portrayed as a hero. She's not right. only the protagonist, but she's a hero. And you can tell. But... To have her to have her walk away for her own moral reasons, that's un- you you understand when she does it. It's not you know presented as something stupid. It makes sense, yeah. and then for her to come back and decide that she does have to rescue people from suffering, and that she wants to try and do good. I was elated to see her come back. Even, you know, even despite that weight, but at the same time, and at the same time, though, you know, based on, you know, the decisions that she made, she's a, she's an, she's a voluntarily enlisted soldier. So that Mm -hmm. definitely was in her character as well. I think they wrote that in from the very start. And it's interesting you say, because she does choose to be in the U.S. military. um, But Andy tells her, you're in the army now. And, and Andy's saying as though she doesn't have a choice. And so I think it's great that she does make that choice herself. Um, uh, I want to go more on this idea of the, the reluctant hero you're talking about because do you think it's fair to see Booker through that same lens? That on some level, Booker's choice is about wanting to no longer be the hero 
um, no longer wanting to just keep, you know, running into the burning building and risk death, no longer wanting to do these things. He wants to kind of give up that mantle and do something else good with, with this immortality that he and others have. As you said, he's kind of, he's voluntolding other people for this instead of himself. I think it's interesting because it seems to me like it is presented that um, addressed, especially when the team sees Copley's board of you right. know all of <laughs> they see all the strings connect. But um, before that, it's you know without seeing that, it's kind of implied that they and it's actually addressed. So one of them says, you know, you were on the outside, you could see it when we couldn't. Um, so it's it's kind of implied that they were doing it for the, you know, for what they could see of it, which was the very small range. They didn't keep tabs on these people. They right. just did their good and moved on. So I think that from Booker's perspective, what I saw was somebody who wanted to do a bigger good or attempted yeah. to do a bigger good. And then, of course, we see in the office the immediate regret on his face. And, the, yeah. and I think that's what... And the immediate realization that maybe that wasn't the way, um, yeah, or the people to go through, and um, I don't know. It's very, and I I think that's kind of what leads to them, you know, saying that he he has to be punished, but not completely written off. Yeah, and and I think I really like the way you're putting it there about the um the kind of almost burnout that they get um, because they can't see that larger picture. Um, you know, I've been a professional organizer and activist for more than 20 years now. And I, there's so many people I know who, you know, were, were dedicated activists, either as professionals or volunteers. But, you know, you spend six months, six years, you know, fighting like crazy, organizing marches, organizing rallies, going to city halls. And it, it sometimes can be hard to see that we're winning. You know, it's it's hard to see victories, especially with everything else happening in the world. And I know lots of activists who burn out, who are just like, I can't keep fighting. I can't keep doing this. It's just hopeless. And so in that regard, I could really relate to the story of folks who feel like we keep fighting, we keep saving people, and then they're keeping more people to save. And they're keep, you know, everybody, we if we ever care for someone, they die. And what's, you know, this kind of nihilistic, like, what's the point anymore? And and so yeah, I think that moment where they get to see all the the good they've done, that larger picture they can't see that that's really powerful, and I think it's really relatable in a really powerful way for anyone who's tried to kind of be involved in a larger fight where it's hard to see that you're making a difference sometimes. For sure, and I think that we as um, in any degree of activism, there is you know discussion of burnout there, and like you said, but there's and there's also discussion of scope, so to speak. That there's yeah. There's time that the, these things take so much time. Um, and that's what, I mean, you see, you see, you know, on the streets today, you'll see people that say, I'm still having to march for these things, which is absolutely ridiculous because, you know, yeah. humans should have rights. But you, you see people, the, the progress is not a decade. It's, you know, it's, it's incremental in a decade. And you, the things that you see, that are not that are both so much further and not as far as we think depending on how it's presented um yeah that there's there's <laughs> there's so much work left to do it really is 
Um, speaking of so much work to do, we have about half an hour to go and a lot of things we want to cover. So oh, I'm going to uh, triage a bit. But we've been talking about some of the villains. And let, let's talk about some of them specifically because I think I, – I mean I'm always a sucker for a good villain. Anyone who's listened to this podcast knows that. But I think we get a number of different people who are not even villains, antagonists, to, all the way reaching to villains. Um you know, with all sorts of different motivations that I think make them very interesting. I, I want to talk about a couple of them. Um, and I generally say that I like the villains who are the most nuanced. So let's start with the most clearly mustache twirly, um, Dr. Merrick. Um, first of all, just a quick aside. Did you recognize the actor playing Dr. Merrick? All right. I did not. So spill it. Imagine him saying, last year I got 37 presents. No! That's Dudley Dursley. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Well, how he's grown. (laughs) He he has. It was just, I looked, there was just a moment where I got, I had a flash of him saying, is Cedric your boyfriend, Harry? And all of a sudden it clicked. Um, (laughs) See, I was so, as, as, you know, as a femme in tech, I was just so overwhelmed by the, have you heard of Bitcoin? That I couldn't. I couldn't do anything yes. but just cringe every time he spoke. Well, my company, shut up, shut up, shut up. No, that man absolutely owns a fedora and calls women <laughs> milady when he flirts with them. And I thinks Anakin Skywalker was a romantic angle hero. And like, I can feel the MySpace angle incel just leaking off every inch of that suit. Yeah. Or worse, or worse, he's like, or worse, he's Russell Hartley and he thinks he's a pickup artist. I can't tell which is which, but he's somehow both. Yeah. he He's both of those. He's also, um, what was, the, there was a, a specific medical tech bro who like bought an insulin company and jacked up the price of insulin. Oh, like, yeah. He, do you remember the guy I'm talking about? And he was just oh, like, I, do. I think the character is somewhat meant to be that per Like he's meant to be a parody of that person because he's just. Oh, for sure. So, so over the top he doesn't seem to actually care that much because i i do think there's an interesting question of you know if you could violate the the human rights of four five people in order to cure all disease forever for everyone i still think i'm on the side of human rights but i admit that's a tough question like and but and i think other characters raise that question the doctor doesn't. The doctor just wants to make a buck and be famous. I think, is that the impression you got? Like, there's nothing altruistic about his perspective. I definitely got the, uh, like I said, the tech seminar vibe, where it's, and we uh-huh. want to make life better for you and my wallet. Yep. And it's better in my, and it's, it's not that Emphasis I care on about my your wallet. life being, <laughs> it's the focus on my wallet. And it's not that I want your life to be better. It's that I want you to thank me when your life is better. Exactly. Um, he wants to be recognized on the street for what he's done. He wants to sign his name on that book. Yeah, exactly. Um, but Copley, to me, presents a much more interesting character as a villain. Um, Copley, as we said, is the one who um, uh, originally hires the team. It turns out he was tricking them. He's working for the doctor because he, he does, in that sort of calculus I presented, he does think that um, if all human disease could be fixed— that getting these four people to do it, even if they won't volunteer, like doing it non-consensually, is worth it. And he eventually comes to realize just how horrible what the doctor is doing is, and his practices are are so sadistic and abusive, and he turns on him and works with the team. But he definitely feels, he starts out making a moral calculus, thinking that this is the right thing to do. 
Um, what what's your take on his character? Um, I think that they gave I think that they gave him a good backstory for his premise, which uh, and for and so they they give him a very traumatic origin story in his uh, in his little you know villain notes um, that they give him such a traumatic experience and <laughs> I think that the thing the thing I remember about him whenever I start you know I, I think bad thoughts about that man because he's, he does some very bad things but I think about just and the actor did a brilliant job with it just the trauma that came through in his voice he said my wife couldn't speak at the end yeah and just how oh I again never had that happen but it was so simply conveyed how horrible that was. And to have it theoretically proposed to you that you could prevent anyone from going through that ever. I can't say I blame him. Human rights violations aside. Yeah, I mean, it's like, to me, the danger with any of those things is like once you, I always have a feeling of like that human rights have to be inviolate because what once you come up with a reason to violate them then it becomes easier and easier to come up with the next reason mm-hmm. but if there's any good re- if there is ever a good reason this is probably it and I, I i feel like his character makes a lot of sense that way especially because part of the thing that i part of what i read got out of him and, and, and tell me if you saw this too or if you um uh if i'm just kind of head here a bit is that he's so he was so invested in this being a good thing that he didn't really pay much like pay much attention because I feel like if you really took a look at that doctor, you would have recognized this is not the thing you want it to be. Um, and he, but he acts like, you know, it, it clearly it's a surprise to him. To me, that kind of came off as like, he was so, he so wanted this to be the right thing that he didn't really kind of look hard into it because he wanted it to be okay. I, I think very much so. I think that he had, and I think that's, I mean, it's it's a moral question that will be, raised in psychology classes across the globe, whether it's you right. know the benefit of the few versus the benefit of the many. Um, right. And I think this, this movie does an interesting job of raising that point um, to the extreme, of course, but um, and showing the perspective where people do bring in their own emotional history and their own emotional perspective. Um, right that you know if and and you can't say that it's you can't take the basic fact that you know he went through something traumatic and he would like people to not go through something traumatic that you 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 read that and you go okay good that is that seems like a good opinion you have a good opinion and then you go and then you open up that flower and it gets heavier with blood yeah I mean, to me, he falls very much in the category to me of like a Magneto or a, um, a Killmonger of someone who has a very legitimate point and his goals make total sense. He's willing to make moral sacrifices to, to achieve those goals that I, I, I kind of get off the bus with. But but his goals make sense, you know, and he, he clearly is coming from in his understanding. He's the hero of his own story in a way that I think would be harder to justify for the doctor. He's definitely... The, there's the point that's made with D&D alignments where someone who is, so to speak, lawful um, has, you know, a code that they want to stick to versus someone who is chaotic will do anything for the code. And he definitely, I think, falls more into the chaotic degree where it's 
you know, there there is a light at the end of that tunnel. Come hell or high water, right. we need to get to the end of that tunnel. Right. So that's yeah. him I... him striving to achieve that goal. There is definitely, you know, an emotionally driven blindness to um and certainly we're we have, you know, the outside perspective. We see everything that's happening and also what he's seeing. Um right. humans inherently are, you know, not perfectly reliable narrators. <laughs> that's come up once or twice in story in analyzing stories <laughs> but so i think i think it's very interesting and i think that um you do see kind of some sun on the horizon for him when he does end up being again they they sort of volunteer him that he's going to be their uh their tech person so to speak their uh their, the cue to their bond but right. um I think it is very interesting that what he's put together is how much good they have done. Um, so yeah, and, and I think it's a help- very interesting character, and I'm very, I'm very fascinated to see where he goes as a character. Right, especially because we we were talking before about how all of them have kind of lost the perspective, you know, because they they how can they relate to someone who dies if they can't die? Um, Copley still can; he's not immortal, and I I'm curious to see what ha- they never explicitly say that. But I'm curious to see what happens to the team when there is now someone in the discussion who can die and who can bring that perspective to them. Um, let, let's talk about um, just a couple of the other villains um, or antagonists. Uh, the other folks who are working for Dr. Merrick. Uh, we've got um, his sort of second-in-command doctor who seems a little bit more dedicated to the, the cause and not um, has some trouble with the methods, Dr. Meta Kozak. We have his kind of head of security, Keen, and then we have just the the nameless henchman. Um, what what's your what are your kind of feelings on on any or all of those, and and how they play into the kind of moral calculus of this movie? See, it's very interesting that you see you say that um, Doctor Kozak that she's um, you know more focused on the the scientific achievement. She's she's more focused on the scientific achievements, I think, more than the morality of it. Um. Mm. I think I think the interesting thing that's posed is that none of the villains are in it for the morality, from what I see. Um, the the key point that hit that home for me is when Doctor Kozak is performing one of the experiments, and this made any medical trauma in me just curl up and pass away. But the scene where she mm. is taking a um, a sample <laughs> from one of the boys and she she starts talking to him and she says like she says just this very flat voice she says can you feel the needle and or she says can you feel yourself trying to heal she says can you can you feel the wound trying to close around the needle yeah and she's just asking him clinically she's just wondering she just wants to have, know have have you seen shira i have not seen shira i need to see shira <clears throat> So Shira introduces a character named Entrapta, who is, you know, the you're, you're the best example of, like, geek girl mad scientist you could imagine. She's a great character. And she's presented very clearly as not moral or immoral, but amoral. Um, she never expressly says this, but a, a, a writer who has talked a lot about her, um, who I heard speak at a WizCon a couple years ago, whose name I can't remember, but I'll insert into the notes, um, gave a great talk about relating to her because she said that she, like Entrapta, it's not that she doesn't want to do right or wrong. It's that sometimes, especially when caught up in like research or science, will sort of forget to care about right or wrong because the science is just so interesting and so fascinating. Um, 
And that's very much the perspective I think that in, the character in Traptic comes from. And that, that I think is kind of this one as well. Like, you're right. For her, it's not about doing good. It's about the, the you know, it's sort of the, the, the Ravenclaw to the most Ravenclaw possible extent of she doesn't want the money and the glory that the doctor does. She doesn't want to save people the way Copley does. She just wants to know. Um, and it it makes me wonder also how much of this is the we were talking about the immortal characters feeling like they're they're so divorced from humanity that they have trouble like recognizing the value of human life sometimes. Um, I think the doctor in some ways is also the opposite. It is that same thing from the other perspective. Like she doesn't see these as like fellow humans. She sees these as specimens, you know, lab rats who are so different than any understanding she has of humanity that they're just, you know, they're, they're people to study without a concern of how is this affecting them. Definitely. And I think it's interesting that we see, you know, sort of that. I think that's kind of a theme is that the, the amorality or the, you know, desensitization to what's happening is a very yeah. common theme that runs through this. Um, that is very well foiled. Um, yeah, it, it really is. But it's interesting how, you know, in, in some degrees it's, it's, I think that it's interesting that it's portrayed in both the heroes, the protagonist, or should I say the protagonists and the villains that, yeah. it, that it's present in both. Um, then, <laughs> and then you get on to, to the, uh, the variety of security guards. Um, mm-hmm. Keen to me comes across as a very enthusiastic military cosplayer. Yeah. If you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, like, it's not that he believes in the cause. It's he believes in, like, someone's giving me a gun and I need to win. Yeah, it's it's very competitive. I Like, if he were a man might who were Snapchatting me, I would have, like, a day of peace before he showed me his gun collection. <laughs> yes. And I can tell. Of, of both literal and metaphorical varieties. Oh, for sure. No, one day of peace for that. Don't worry. It's like like yeah. the night of 2 a.m., you up, send tweet. Yeah. But, um, yeah. no, it's it's very much the, um, he's, yeah, he's the military cosplayer security guard. He's overly outfitted and he's eager to use it. Um, and then, of course, you get a, a, so to speak, real threat and he's just having a heyday. Um, yeah, the, the kind of, as those fights come to, come to the end, that's a very interesting, I did, I will note that I did very much like that instead of it being, we, you, you have the, you have plenty of rescue scenes. The one that, the one that comes to mind of a, so to speak, medical rescue scene is the, the Bucky Barnes rescue scene from the uh, first Avenger, Captain America. Oh yeah. Um, where Bucky is pseudo capable but he's definitely limping his way out of that thing. Um, mm-hmm. I do like that we get to see a little bit more of Sebastian and Nikki actually triumphantly fighting their way out with the team. Um, yeah. I appreciated that because I really liked those characters and I liked seeing them fight things. But yeah, um, they work, uh, they work well was... as a team and they continue to just have, you know, we're bouncing back, let's get this. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's all very true. I think, and, and so Keen is like the doctor one that I'm, I'm pretty happy to see die a, a well-deserved death. Um, you know, we commented on the henchmen that it, it made me almost a little uncomfortable that <clears throat> we were just seeing people who are basically kind of like, you know, not true believers in a cause, just security guards, you know, getting mown down. 
Um, but I think, as we said, that it seems like it's kind of the point. You know, it's I, there are some movies where it feels like they want to show you a Hugh Jackson scene, and they haven't really told you why it's okay that the people we're seeing get moaned down, get moaned down. Um, but here, I think that's part of the point is that the characters have kind of lost touch with that. Um, we're almost at time, so just quickly touch on a last point, which is um, uh, the character of Quinn and her kind of reappearance at the very end. Um, what What's your kind of take on the role she plays in this whole story? I think it's very interesting. So as a, as a reminder for those who, uh, who have seen it or for those who haven't, uh, Quinn is first brought up once they have Niall with the whole group. I talked about how the um, the team is somehow dream connected. Um, that Niall wakes up from this horrifying dream that she's been drowning, and she explains it to the team, who basically says, "Yeah, we know who that is, and that it is it is Quinn, a former member of the team who fought by Andy's side." That it is also addressed that they found out about the end of the immortality, so to speak by the death of, it was Andy Quinn and another member of the team for a little while. Um, right. And then it was Andy and Quinn for a long time, just the two of them. Um, and then they were captured and Quinn is, yeah, she's put in a metal, oh, she's put in a metal box and essentially sentenced to drown forever. Um, so mm-hmm. we see her once Booker is separated off from the team, we see her on her own two feet. They they address that Andy's tried to find her. They address that they can't find where she was. She was, you know, taken out in a ship, taken out past the harbor, and a metal case was thrown out into the ocean. She has somehow reappeared. Um, yeah. We we don't know how. I want to say she seems sane because they 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 do address that that would like that would drive anyone insane. That would drive anyone mad because it would. Being, yeah, you know, dying every five minutes for three hundred years is yeah, not good. Yeah, dying by drowning, stability. which is a is an excruciating death. Um, right. So she seems she you know stands on her own two feet, eyes clear, and she says, "Hi, Booker." Which yeah. Well, <laughs> she's there. Yeah, the the fact that she's reappeared to the one who is driven away from the group makes me think that. This is not entirely on the up and up. I, I think she's going to be some kind of an antagonist in the second movie. I hope she's not the big bad, but is more eventually sort of brought back into the fold. But it's it's going to be a very interesting story. I think um, it I'm would really be very interesting. My uh, my little fan theory is that someone brought her back, and then we're going to have a a la Winter Soldier where she has to be brought back into the fold, and then the third movie can be them fighting that bad guy. That would oh, be I'd like that a lot. My hope that would be nice for me. I would like it because, <laughs> but I do, I do think it's interesting that you did have a bit of. It is, it's never addressed explicitly, but it is very heavily implied. It was Andy and Quinn, and that's it for a long time. If you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and 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 certainly that the way that that um, you know, I don't think it's coincidence that the 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 period that they are caught up in and that they are hated. Like, the fact that they're immortal is part of it, but it's because they're seen as witches. It's, they and... are accused of witchcraft, and it's it's decided... The reason that Quinn is sentenced to a death that she is is because they are too powerful together. That is what is explicitly yeah. said on screen. They are... Because she Andy is tied to... Or she is bound by chains to a wall. Quinn is pulled out of the room, and the man says, you are too powerful together. And that I think that's very, very intentionally implicit. supposed to be a, 
Yeah, I think it's very intentionally supposed to be a very misogynistic and very queer phobic kind of approach. You know, it's not just two people. It's that these two women have power and that these two women together without any men have this power. I think, I yes, I think, um, I think that this is, this is a movie directed, directed by a black woman and it is set in a very specific lens um, that I think, I think queer people, I, I don't necessarily want to see that say that, you know, the straight white people won't see it. But as a as a queer femme, I definitely think I saw. I I I I felt a deep resonance with certain parts of this movie, that I hope mm-hmm. people who don't you know necessarily have that you know, don't have empathy for it can't you know relate in their own parallelisms. But I do hope they see it. Yeah, and I can say as someone who related to aspects of the movie but who is white male and and straight ish and cis ish like very much much more on those sides than anything else for me it was very powerful to see a movie where i could very much find things i could very much relate to aspects of the story but it wasn't a story told about people like me uh, who look like me and that that you know it's getting better but we're still at a point where that is still surprising to me um in a good way and one that i enjoy but one that i find I think it is helpful for someone who who isn't that that um, what is represented on screen to see that more so that's, you know, to getting out of the. But I had 37 heroes who looked like me last year kind of mentality <laughs> that unfortunately so much of fandom still has. Uh, I tried to get another Dursley reference in there. because well, We're just going to we're just going to spice those in as many, you know, little, yeah. little, little Harry Potter reference for flavor. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, even the author might be terrible, but we can still use it as a reference point. Um, <clears throat> Pardon me, I like cry. Do you have any kind of. Um, last thoughts you want to um say about it as we kind of wrap up um i think that for anyone who hasn't seen it and has stuck it out thanks for sticking it out uh you should <laughs> definitely. definitely see it uh i think i'm very excited to delve into the comic first because i want to give that a try i am super excited definitely. for whatever comes next for all of these characters and i appreciate so much the lens that this movie put these you know big not uncommon questions the the uncommon lens that these questions were put through and i think it's a fantastic movie i think it's a great piece of media to come out in the time that it did and i'm so glad that yeah. this is a movie that had the opportunity to be created yeah i i think that's a great way to put it and i there's a point that i wanted to make this entire podcast and quite figure out how to fit it in until what you just said of that it, it's a common story told in a new way um because Part of what I keep thinking is I have seen the story of I cannot die and so I find it hard to connect to your mortal morality, but I've met a mortal and I care about a mortal and so I am trying to relate to them. And it's always a vampire story. <laughs> um, I mean, that's a, a very classic trope. And it, it's a good trope, but it's a very classic trope in vampirism of, you know, I've been around a thousand years. It's hard for me to care about what happens tomorrow. Um and it was just kind of refreshing to see that without anyone drinking blood or sparkling or dying in the sunlight or anything like that, you know? I think um, it reminds me, I had a professor once who told me that once you'd read all the old stories, you would have read every story ever. It's just a matter of how they're told. And I think right. about that a lot with this movie. With It's not necessarily a new story. It just—it's just a new lens, but I think it's a beautiful mm-hmm. one, right? Because it's now—it's not just 
for a while it was, let's have the same group of people tell the same stories, but try to find new different ways to do it. This is, let's let someone new tell the same story, you know, and say, um, <clears throat> there was a concept that we talked about a lot in grad school. I, I studied religion and, and part of it was about like, you know, listening to what a story sounds like when someone else reads it, you know, that, that <clears throat> a biblical score story might mean one thing to me, but it's going to mean something radically different to a native American or a Palestinian woman or whoever it was, you know, and we would take like one particular biblical story and read seven different essays on it by people from all sorts of different perspectives. And that's what I kind of feel like we're having with this movie and with others of, you know, it's, it, this, this story has a lot of tropes, you know, 10 minutes into the story, you can predict almost everything that's going to happen um, in, in broad strokes. Um, but <clears throat> as you said, seeing it from that other lens is just fascinating. Um, well, Fox, thank you so much for being a part of this. It was a great conversation. Um, I'm going to uh, already invite you back to uh, uh, be part of it when we get the second movie. And especially if you do read the comics, would love to hear you talk about like that and how they're different or the same. Um, and for our fans who are just uh, meeting you now for the first time, if they want to follow more of your kind of creative arts and stuff like that, uh, where would they keep track of what you're up to and where you're writing and doing things? I am actually pretty consistent on social media. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all that good stuff. I am over at VoidFox21. Void is in a hole in the sky. Fox is in me. 21 is in I was that old when I created my gamer tag. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Yeah, and definitely check out. I always really enjoy your, your writings and perspectives, and also your cosplay is phenomenal, and I'm really excited to get you on to talk about ethics of cosplay at some point because I think it is a very interesting part of fandom that, that does not get discussed, and when it's discussed, it's in some pretty terrible ways. And I really want to, um, you know, talk about what, what, what's all the great things about cosplay and, and as well as what, what the dumb things that toxic men do when, <laughs> when people dress up in fun ways. I'm definitely um, excited and, to and, talk about it. I'm already excited to come back. I've had a great time and thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's been really great having you. So, um, fans, what's your take on this? Um, you know, what is, is there a point at which violating the, 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 the rights of five people to save all of humanity, um, is that the greatest trolley? Is that the uh, most expansive trolley problem ever created? And yes, no, it's not the exact trolley problem. I know. I went to school. Um, but just it's a fun one to talk about. What's your take on that? What's your take on this show, or this movie? I, I want it to be a how TV show. How gay were you for theme uh, Charlize Theron? Because I, I was, I was like a 10. I, I, I said, how gay were you for Charlize Theron? Because I, I was a 10 out of 10, but I don't know what the fans take that. That haircut is working yeah. for her. It it's a good look. It's a good look. Um, I'm definitely liking it. There was, other than Dudley Dursley, there was very few unattractive characters in this. We, um, I think my favorite I was, is that my brain immediately associated Booker with. It's not the same actor, but immediately associated Booker with Mads Mikkelsen. So mm, I and I yeah, could not I get that, that out of my head for the entire time. I was like, "Is it Hannibal? Is it?" Um. I'm going to look something up quickly before I make my last point. Because <clears throat> do you remember who plays Sarah Connor in Terminator 2? Oh, God, that has been a long time out. <laughs> I know. Linda Hamilton. <clears throat> and your point's a great one. Because I remember um, dating myself a bit. Uh, when the second Terminator movie came out, there was a lot of talk afterwards of, you know, how, how many um, um, teenager older women, like, discovered their queerness by watching Linda Hamilton as Sarah Connor in Terminator 2. And I think Charlize Theron, if, if she's the Linda, Linda Hamilton of this generation, that would make a lot of sense. I'm, I'm okay uh, with it. I think she's doing a great job. I, I'm i having a nice time. Yeah, it, it was... I, I loved all of it. Um, so fans, what did you love? What did you like? Uh, let us know. 
You can find us on Twitter, on Facebook, at Superhero Ethics. You can also find us, uh, email us, superheroethics at gmail.com. And this podcast is proud to be a member of the Stranded Panda Podcast Network, um, on which we have a number of other podcasts that cover um, Star Wars, Star Trek, the MCU, DC Universe, uh, Orville. And recently, I've been a part of a new one called PandaVision, in which we're talking about TV shows that really warrant discussion, especially a lot of ethical discussion, but that don't fit neatly into an established verse. Um, so we've recently done episode-by-episode discussions of The Boys, getting ready for Season 2. We did all of Season 1 and are just finishing up now all of Season 2 of Umbrella Academy. A lot of great discussion there. Klaus forever. Um, check all those out. Check out the other great things on Stranded Panda. Please leave a review if you think we're worth it, and um, have a great day. Yeah.